You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host, and I'm really excited about today's discussion. I know that this is going to be a discussion that you're going to learn a lot. There's this term called spectrum that if you don't know about it, you're going to know about it when we're done talking. Consumer demand for wireless services just continues to increase in the U.S., and that's making the need for more commercial spectrum a priority as more people migrate to mobile platforms. Spectrum, as CTIA has argued, is what the U.S. needs to fully power all of the devices from tablets to smartphones to Internet of Things and other devices that rely upon high-speed connectivity. And consumer advocates have even appealed to the federal government for what's called unlicensed spectrum, because it supports community networks and all the alternatives for advancing mobile connectivity. You should be familiar with that. Unlicensed spectrum is what we see in the airport. It's what we see in local cafes. It's actually complementary of the commercial spectrum that we have. In both cases, the problem in the United States is that we just don't have enough. And we've been talking about this issue for quite some time. I know because I was part of that conversation very early in my career. Without the needed spectrum to manage rising demand, the U.S. will not only not have what we need in terms of capacity, but will be outdone by other countries like China that are providing large amounts of spectrum to state-run and commercial companies, particularly as they try to lead the race in 5G technologies. On this episode of our podcast, I am so glad to be joined by not only the person who is the Senior Spectrum Advisor in the Office of the Assistant Secretary at the National Telecommunications Information Administration, NTIA for short, but he's also a friend, someone who I've known since I've actually entered the D.C. policy space, and that is Scott Blake Harris. Scott is in charge of NTIA's strategy to develop a national spectrum plan that notes sufficient access to radio spectrum as critical for national security, public safety, competitive next-generation communications, and even scientific discovery. So we hope to jump into this conversation a little bit more, leaning in with both explanation and interrogation of what we're going to do as a country to not only address the spectrum scarcity, but also make sure that as you're listening to this podcast, that you have enough spectrum to do the things that you also want to do on your mobile devices. So thank you, Scott, for joining us. I appreciate you, my friend. It's been a long time. It has been a long time, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Though I have to say, your introduction was so good, I think you covered everything, so maybe we can just you know, <laughs> cut it down right now. I know. That's thanks to our RA team that I sound smart. <laughs> you always sound smart, my friend. 
Well, I appreciate you so much because this is one of those areas that, you know, some people think is really wonky and it's really reserved for the technologists. But, you know, spectrum is really a, a, an important concern, right, Scott? I mean, this is what keeps all of the devices and the activities that are running over these internet-enabled platforms together. It's sort of like the fuel, the currency, you know, for what is going to make our network successful. So before we jump into, you know, just why you're in this particular role right now, I'd love if you can just do an explainer for people who are kind of jumping into this dialogue with very little knowledge. So look, every wireless device uses the radio spectrum. That is by definition. And we think, first of all, of course, of our cell phones, but it's way more than just our cell phones. It's everything from piloting drones to aircraft landing safely to our national defense, to satellites, uh, to, to your Wi-Fi in the home. Um, they use wireless to, uh, uh, to tell cars where they should be going, geolocation, for sensor purposes, for to, to, to monitor climate change, for weather satellites. All of these things require access to spectrum. And the problem is every day we have more and more devices, more and more uh, technologies that need access to spectrum. And so we need to find more access to spectrum. And when you say access, Scott, I want you to talk a little bit more about that as well before we start unpacking the policy concerns and the industry um, uh, needs and priorities around spectrum. So, you know, too often we talk about spectrum as if it's a thing, right? Or as if it's land. We mo need more people to squeeze on the land or whatever. It's actually not that. It, it's actually something more technical. But in some ways, because of that, it's a problem that is more solvable. We're talking about transmitting a radio signal at a particular frequency. And so you're not getting access to a thing. You're getting the ability to transmit a radio signal at a particular frequency. And the reason it can be a problem is that two people are transmitting on that same frequency at the same time. You can't understand what either is trying to say. So we need to arrange a system, a regulatory scheme, if you will, so that many people can transmit frequencies, transmit signals on similar frequencies or perhaps even identical frequencies, but in a way that they don't interfere with one another so that the, the signals can be understood. Yeah, and I'd like to um, use the example of when people are in their vehicles, right, Scott, and they're sort of changing channels. And at some points, based on where you are, you may find, you know, back in the days, double voices over one channel, <laughs> um, you know, I try to explain to people who are not familiar with this space on how do these radio frequencies work. It's not too different than that, right? And we constantly, because of the spectrum scarcity, experience like these collisions, right? Um, much like we do in radio. So I am way older than you are. So I don't know if you go back to the days of old-fashioned broadcast TV, yep. where you'd be watching a broadcast uh, on, on your TV and suddenly little white flakes would appear, or that's interference. And if you have too much of that, you couldn't watch the TV station you were watching. Same is true on your cell phone. Uh, if there are too many signals, you, you can get crosswise, and then they won't work uh, the way they're supposed to work. 
man, you're like aging me. So I remember when I was a little girl, I had like a black and white TV up in my room with those rapid. There you go. There you go. But I thought that you saw all the like snowflakes because the channel was like ending for the night. (laughs) (laughs) I never stayed up that late, so I'm not sure. But you are. I had my own room. You 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 are older than I thought. Actually, (laughs) I had my own room in the attic, and my parents didn't know what I was watching. I mean, it was nothing really on because we didn't have cable. But um, that's how I remember those snowflakes. It was like all of a sudden everything went dark. (laughs) Yeah, when it was me, they hadn't invented cable. Just saying. Yeah, right. (laughs) So I want to pick up on that because this is a role, um, and you know. Secretary Davidson has also talked about your role being very critical as he implements the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is involving, you know, this huge down payment in broadband access. And more importantly, sort of the, I don't want to call it a bet, but like this movement towards ensuring that we have universal connectivity and that we're closing the digital divide. Talk to us a little bit about like where you fit within this grand scheme of how things are being ordered at the NTIA when it comes to the president's aspirations that we're going to have, you know, a, 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 if, if not a closed digital divide, right, we're going to have at least a, a, a narrowed one when this investment in the bipartisan infrastructure bill is, is done. So look, you know, spectrum policy is going to be part of our attempt to close the digital divide. It has to be. Why? Because most broadband traffic is at some point transmitted wirelessly. Even if you have fiber, at some point it probably goes over a Wi-Fi connection, perhaps in your home, perhaps in the school library. Uh, Lots of broadband traffic goes over cell phones or over tablets. Uh, And now we increasingly have fixed wireless internet service. So given how much of broadband traffic actually is transmitted wirelessly, as you attack the digital divide, you need to have a spectrum policy that fits in and helps helps you do that. And one important measure of success for our national spectrum strategy will be whether in the end, we can assure more spectrum access for both current and future technologies and services to be part of that closing of the digital divide. So I want to stay on that topic for just a moment in terms of closing the digital divide and the correlation with the spectrum strategy. And I, I particularly want to stay on this issue of existing and future proofing you know, for, for other technologies. What other applications do you see sort of running over these wireless networks so that our audience can get a sense of you know, why this is such a serious conversation and important one to have? Again, we all, as I said before, we all think about cell phone services, but you need spectrum for intelligent transportation systems, right? For cars, Uh, you need it for precision agriculture. We need more precise and more secure geolocation, think GPS. It's used for earth sensing, for space services. Uh, We're sending people to the moon, right? How How are we gonna control and the, the the systems that are headed to the moon and how are we going to talk to the people on the way to the moon and why they're there. That's all spectrum. We need it for advanced manufacturing. There's even wireless electric charging now, whereby you're going to be able to walk into a room, presumably, and have your cell phone automatically start charging. Why? Because the electricity is in the air. I think those are really great examples, Scott, and I actually am happy that you brought those up. I was just writing them down because I didn't think about that, that, you know, emerging technologies are more than just AI, right? But they're actually going to be functional activities that people are going to engage in. But 
we still have this problem, which are the fact that we currently have no bands in the U.S. in that pipeline. Talk to us a little bit about the creation of the Spectrum Pipeline as it's tied to this release of the National Spectrum Strategy um, and when that might come or what are you thinking about uh, and, and really advise us on like, how did we get here, right? Because we've been talking about this for a long time um, and the fact that we're sort of you know, depleted of the type of bands to enable the activities that you're talking about um, probably keeps you up at night, right? Uh, actually, that's a good point. It does keep me up at night. Uh, I know Spectrum can't keep you. Can't, Spectrum can't keep you working. That's the problem, right? But it can keep you up. <laughs> uh, so look, um, one goal of the Spectrum strategy is to develop a Spectrum pipeline by identifying bands for in-depth study to see if those bands can be repurposed. And what do I mean by repurposed? I mean by making making those Spectrum bands, making those frequencies available for different or more intensive spectrum use. And we hope to identify at least 1500 megahertz of spectrum, which is a lot for intensive study. And our goal is to finish all of those studies within a two year period. And when we are done with that, ideally we'll, we'll have to identify a large chunk of spectrum that can be repurposed and what I and again, what I mean by that is made available for different uses or simply more intensive use than it is currently uh, is currently possible today. And are there other bands outside of the one that you mentioned being considered? Well, I didn't mention. I, I I was careful. I didn't mention a band. I mentioned the number, the amount of megahertz. Okay, uh, perfect. We are looking for fifteen hundred megahertz, and we are looking both up and down the spectrum band. Okay, looking for those spectrum bands again. What I mean is those frequencies that are that can be used for more intensive for additional purposes, new purposes, or for more intensive use. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I think early in the conversations around uh, spectrum pipeline, right? We have sought out, if if I'm correct with this, like larger, uh, bigger capacity bands, right? And we're finding that there's just a lot more diversity within the bands that we should be paying attention to, right? There are a lot. There are a lot of bands that that can and should be studied, and the truth is, we have our own ideas at NTIA about which bands might be interesting to study for this for these purposes, but we began a public outreach process. We issued a, a request for comments. We've held two public listening sessions. We are actually going out to the public. We are actually going out to stakeholders. We're going out to people who use Spectrum or want to use Spectrum for their thoughts on what bands we should be studying. We need to know from them what they need the Spectrum for. We want to know from them what bands they think is mo are most appropriate for their uses. Um, and we are going to take all of that information into account as we prepare the spectrum strategy. And by the way, we are also going to be work, working with federal agencies who also use the spectrum all the time, whether it's NOAA on the weather satellites, whether it is NASA um, uh, uh, sending folks to the moon or to the International Space Station, uh, whether or not it's the Department of Defense uh, flying drones. Uh, uh, over the Black Sea and sending back video when they're attacked over the Black Sea. Uh, all of these federal missions have critical spectrum needs, and we need to know what they, they need, not just today, but what they need in the future as well. And I love the way that you keep mentioning space, right? And I keep thinking about sitting in this chair with you 
when I first, you know, met you when I was at the Joint Center, for example, back in the early 2000s, you know, that wasn't even a conversation, <laughs> right? Exactly. And I think the FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, just presented their first item on space through the new division. So, like you said, these are really exciting applications, but they're going to require this um, support and this network um, infrastructure to be able to do this. And this is not the typical infrastructure that we talk about, right? It's not what we think about every day. But That's right. The, That's these right. spectrum uses are critical and they are only increasing. Yes. Yes. Which brings me to this question around license and unlicensed um, spectrum. You know, that has been an, a traditional debate that has been had in terms of, you know, the need, obviously, for more commercial spectrum. When we begin to assess that against the government um, uh, appropriated spectrum, particularly at the Department of Defense. So, as you know, there's always been uh, conversations and some debate and tensions around uh, how commercial spectrum is made available to industry who are trying to enable many of the activities that you spoke about. And then there's also the discussion around unlicensed spectrum, which again, as I mentioned earlier, many people can equate to the type of spectrum that they access when they're at a coffee shop or you know, maybe sitting at a park nowadays to actually get access to unlicensed spectrum. And some people, so I can sound a little bit smart, Scott, right, have a combination of both <laughs> because spectrum is always jumping around um, to get to the right uh, level of seamless connectivity. I think you hit on it exactly. All too often, the discussion of spectrum allocations are described as a binary or even an antagonistic choice licensed or unlicensed. But in my view anyway, both kinds of allocations are necessary. And as you just pointed out, they work together. Just as an example, much cellular network traffic will default to a Wi-Fi network when you go indoors, right? If you are talking or using broadband on your cell phone outside, you're using licensed spectrum. As you go through your front door, if you have a Wi-Fi network in the house, that's likely to default to the Wi-Fi network. And it's the same traffic doing all the same stuff, but you've just had it on two different networks. And by the way, that helps the folks who run the cellular network because it clears up space for them, right? As you move on to Wi-Fi, they have more spectrum available for other people who are still outdoors. So for me, it's not licensed or unlicensed. It's got to be licensed and unlicensed. And I expect the outcome of our work in crafting the national spectrum strategy will be to provide spectrum access for both and for shared spectrum as well. And that makes a lot of sense, which brings me to sort of playing off of your uh, binary construction, like our traditional way in which we sort of structure these conversations is either this or that, right? The same thing is said, can be said about who's in the space as well, right? You've got wireless industry uh, leaders, Federal incumbents are key players here. But what's been so interesting to me, Scott, is like over the last few years, we've seen a lot of other stakeholders who you probably heard from on the listening sessions, but they've come to the table. Um, you know, for a long time, I used to say that um, our prior mutual friend, Michael Calabrese, was like the lone voice, right? <laughs> but he's been joined by others. Um, and I'm curious to hear from you, like, what are these other voices that you're hearing from um, or who are these other voices that you're hearing from and what impact do you think that will have overall in the national spectrum strategy? So as I said earlier, you have all of these new advanced uses or spectrum dependent systems. I talked about in 
intelligent transportation. So the auto industry is, is very interested. The aviation industry, completely reliant on, uh, on spectrum and spectrum dependent services. We've talked about agriculture, precision agriculture, um, the scientific community. Uh, all of these silos, all of these verticals, all of these new industries are spectrum dependent and increasingly so. And we do that going in. So as we released our request for comments and as we sought public input, we actually went out of our way to get in touch with folks who don't ordinarily follow telecom issues and say, look, this is really important to you, to you, we believe. If you have any thoughts about this, please let us know. And in response to our request for comments, we've received 130 formal comments already. We expect to receive many more informal comments. And I think we've been successful in our outreach. And it's critical that we are successful because if we don't know what auto industry, the auto industry needs, if we do not know what the aviation industry needs, if we do not know what the agriculture industry needs, if we do not know what's, what the, sci the scientific community needs, we're unlikely to be able to meet those needs. And it's our goal to meet those needs. And it makes me think, though, when you start to bring... Okay, so I'm sort of thinking about like where this conversation has gone for the last decade. And I'm thinking about these use cases that you're mentioning, I am curious how you're going to manage with such uh, scarcity though, right? How do you accommodate the auto industry, the aviation industry, the wireless industry, uh, you know, maybe the interests of public groups who want to develop more uh, localized community networks using uh, unlicensed spectrum. Um, do you see this? Okay. You know, how do I put this? I'm trying to say this in a nice way, Scott, with my uh, without my New York hat on. But do you see this as you creating this all out like spectrum battle <laughs> between the various sectors? Or do you see the report that you're writing as sort of a ramp or on ramp for people to figure out where they can participate? You know, because that's always been the challenge with this. Like there's just not enough to go around. And then when people say that and you open it up to new actors, you know, how do you think you're going to mitigate some of that uh, prior conversation to make this more productive? So I think there are a couple of answers to this. Again, part of the problem is we've all the way we talk about spectrum, because it's hard to conceptualize it, is as if it is a thing, as is if it is land, right? Only so many people can perhaps fit on an acre. But we're talking about transmitting radio signals over frequencies, right? So this is an engineering and a scientific problem. It's not thus a zero-sum game. And the other part of our spectrum strategy, which I've not yet talked about, is, is, is about coordination and cooperation, right? It's not, a, and I, I love the idea, are you creating a battle over spectrum? One of the things we are trying to focus on, and it's, it's one of the pillars of our, of our spectrum strategy, is coordination and cooperation among all of the parties that need access to spectrum. Because at the end of the day, it's only going to work if we can set up long-term processes where private sector, members of the private sector can work with them, work with each other and work with the government sector and various parts of the government can work with each other 
to coordinate spectrum use. Because if you can sit down at a table and work out scientific, the scientific principles that are applicable, and you can come up with ways, you can come up with ways to share spectrum much more intensively than people anticipate. And that's part of the goal, to get everyone at the table together in a transparent, regular, consistent way to address these, what are engineering and scientific issues at the end of the day. And that's interesting because that's like a a different way that we've looked at this debate, Scott. So I appreciate this whole zero-sum game and this idea that, you know, sitting on spectrum and and buying for spectrum is more like an, uh, you know, a property value, right, versus what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, so let me give you a very simplistic example. And it, it's, it's, sim- it, it's almost so simplistic, it's misleading, but it also is not. So... You and I both want to transmit a radio signal on a, at a particular frequency. Let's just pull one out of the air. Let's say five gigahertz, right? If you set up, a, and the way you do that is you set up a transmitter that transmits at five gigahertz and a receiver that hears at five gigahertz, right? If you and I do it standing next to each other and transmit at the same time, your receiver is going to hear my my transmitter and your transmitter at the same time. It's going to get confused and it won't work. But if you and I agree, I'm going to send my signal now and you're going to send your signal in an hour. It's not a problem, right? Because we have shared the spectrum by dividing it according to time. You can do that in a much more complicated way and share spectrum by dividing it by time. Alternatively, I can set up my transmitter and receiver in Washington, DC at five gigahertz, and you can push set up yours in Baltimore. And we can use it at exactly the same time. And there's no interference. Why? Because we've shared spectrum by location. And again, in many more complicated ways, that's a spectrum sharing technique. But to do that, you and I have to talk and you and I have to agree that I'm going to turn mine on now and you're going to turn yours on later. And that's why coordination, discussion, as well as the applicability of engineering and scientific principles can allow for more intensive spectrum use. No, I get it. And I love the way that you've laid that out. I mean, I think that's some of the clearest way that I'm thinking about like you know, forward in terms of how spectrum management will pan out, you know, but I do have to ask you too, this hard question about the federal government Um, and some of the folks that want to keep theirs always on. Are you thinking about at NTIA how those debates sort of get discussed and explored within the strategy? Um, Because as you, you and I know, you know, there's always been this concern that the federal government is sort of hogging up a lot of spectrum and, and keeping it on all the time. It's like, your kids keeping the lights on and not worrying yeah, about turning so, them off. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I've worked with federal agencies for a really long time. And of course, now I'm in an executive branch agency and work with them even, even more than I did before. And I would say a couple of things. Number one, federal agencies don't just hog spectrum because, you know, it's sort of fun to do so. I mean, that doesn't really make any sense. Uh, and... It's also true that federal agencies are not as inefficient in the use of their spectrum as is sometimes 
argued, the federal agencies are as interested in advanced technologies and are as at the edge of technological development as anyone in the private sector. Uh, and so the question is not about how do we get the, 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 the federal government to stop doing stupid things? Because in my experience, they're not doing stupid things. They're doing things like guiding missiles. They're doing things like sending out drones uh, to protect the national airspace. Uh, they're doing all sorts of critical missions and they are doing so in technologically efficient ways. Having said that, there is always an opportunity to do better by doing the kinds of things I was talking about, by coordinating, by working on engineering to fit in additional spectrum uses. Uh, and in my view, the federal agencies uh, are as eager to do that uh, as the private sector. Certainly, they're willing to do that. And part of our spectrum strategy is working with them really on a day-to-day -day basis. In other words, when the national spectrum strategy is issued, it's going to be an all-of-government strategy. It's not just going to be what's in the heads of those of us at NTIA. We are already working with any federal agency that uses spectrum on how to get this right. And that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you recall you know, that uh, debate that happened with the FAA, right, and 5G. I love the way you're thinking about this. And maybe, you know, I would even add to your thoughts on, you know, the idea of more information sharing and awareness raising. Because to your point, we've really never sat down and, and divided out this pie in ways that make sense because we've always been in a somewhat reactive stage when you think, when it comes to our global competitors as well. So, you know, I'm glad you sort of, you mentioned that uh, the FAA issue that arose when 5G networks first started to be worked out. That was a failure of coordination, right? Uh, if folks had talked about that issue has basically been resolved now. Uh, and the problem was it was resolved after the fact rather than before the fact. And Part of the spectrum strategy is to put in place coordination mechanisms so that these kinds of issues, which will arise from time to time, are resolved before the fact rather than after they become a problem. Yeah, that makes sense because for those of you not familiar, you know, we all want our, you know, next G, which is 5G, and in some cases now, you know, some companies talk about 10G, and the challenge that arose, just to get those of you up to speed, was that the uh, FAA, who's in responsible for the aviation um, spectrum, thought there was going to be a collision uh, of, of, you know, an interference that they thought was not going to be conducive to what their role in environment was. But I do agree with you. I think once they did better coordination and raised awareness, it, it somewhat worked itself out there. Well, there was a, it did, it, it actually worked itself out in that there were engineering responses that made it work. The airlines are rolling out altimeters, which were the, were, were the device everyone was concerned would be affected. They're adding uh, filters to filter out unwanted frequencies. Uh, and, in and, and for their part, the, uh, the, the cellular telephone companies are changing the output on their towers somewhat. And with those engineering tweaks, everything works. And, that's what, and that goes back to what I said 
at the very beginning, these are engineering issues we're talking about. These are scientific issues, and they are often uh, able to be resolved uh, through rational discussion and, and engineering, engineering, engineering magic. Well, that's why I was going to actually bring up, so I'm glad you reiterated that. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that coordination can happen, particularly in this advanced economy that we're in, where the engineering techniques and the software has just gotten better, right? Um, so thank you for keep reiterating that, because I think, you know, people often do not realize, even like in the case of 5G, that much of that is software uh, dominated. It, it's not, it's important to have the propagation and the signal and the line of sight uh, to ensure stronger signaling between different outposts, but a lot of it is also based on software. So thank you for saying that um, over and over again. Um, which reminds me about like the international piece, uh, Scott, I want to kind of go back to. According to 5G Americas, the uh, 4,400, 5,000 megahertz range is least discussed for mobile broadband use in the U.S., but abroad there's growing interest in this range um, as evidenced by the inclusion um, in ITU, WRC 23 agenda items, World Radio Con Congress for People, uh, where we're getting really wonky here. I told you we weren't, but we are for a minute. Um, I, would, I would just love to hear from you, you know, why that discrepancy between international interests and domestic, quote unquote, lack of interest in this type of um, spectrum range is there. And whether or not, you know, the U.S. is going to engage in some studies regarding the introduction of commercial services in this area. And, and the reason I think that's also important, Scott, because you also know that we've seen some of this in the past, right, when the international partners use spectrum ranges that we didn't even consider when we were developing uh, much of our spectrum depth. So just curious, you know, in terms of the response you think that NTIA may have or not have in response to uh, the introduction of different ranges for spectrum services of other countries. Well, let's do the specific and move to the more general. So in the particular band you mentioned, 4400 band, in the United States is used, it is the primary band used for aeronautical mobile telemetry. What that means is the spectrum it's used to transmit to the ground in real time information about the safety and performance of airplanes, drones, missiles, other aircraft that are undergoing testing. So I, it's obviously critical spectrum. This stuff is really important. And so that might explain the lack of focus on that particular band in the U.S. as compared to elsewhere, because I don't know we build more airplanes, drones, missiles, have more of them than they do elsewhere in the world. And so testing of those things, having real-time information about their performance and their safety may be more critical here than elsewhere, right? Uh, having said that, it is certainly possible this is a band that could be studied for repurposing anyway, but how likely that is, frankly, is going to depend upon the work we do over the next six months. Do we hear from those in the private sector that they think this is an important band? And if so, we'll look into it. And then the question will be, does the FAA and others who, are, who rely on this band, do they think commercial use might be possible under some conditions? And if so, what are those conditions? And if everyone thinks it's possible, then we would probably designate a band, not just that one, but any band for, for further study. And in, ter and, and in terms of, you know, the rest of the world, I mean, ideally, you would like to harmonize spectrum 
globally uh, because there are uh, there are economies of scale when you can do that uh, when you do that and there are other sorts of benefits. But are you always going to be able to harmonize? No. Uh, should you always harmonize? Probably not. Why? Because every country has its has different needs, right? Every country has has different missions for it, its respective uh, government, and so you need to have your spectrum allocations track the needs of your own country, track and, and, and track the needs of what your your people, uh, what's best in your respective public interest. One example might be. Uh, in the United States, we have allocated our six gigahertz spectrum for uh, unlicensed services. There's a big discussion at the ITU whether half of that band should be take, should be used instead for commercial wire, wireless services, 5G services, unlike what we're doing in the United States. China, which is trying to create markets for Huawei, is really pushing hard to take half of that band and, and allocate it for 5G. In the United States, we're pushing to leave it as it is for unlicensed or Wi-Fi kinds of services. The Chinese have their own uh, self-interest. Uh, we, 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 are, we are pushing uh, to have the domestic U.S. allocation uh, apply internationally. Yeah, that makes sense too, because I think to your point, I mean, you want the interoperability, but then again, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about since I wrote my last chapter around the race to 5G between the U.S. and China is the extent to which you're talking about, you know, are there certain bands that will allow for U.S. innovation in those bands, right, um, that we may also want to consider is, is what I think I hear you saying. Right. And, and keep in mind, you know, there is all, you know, and we're thinking not about just 5G. We're thinking about 6G coming down the road in probably less than a decade. Um, and, you know, innovation comes in many forms and there's no one spectrum allocation that is the the spectrum allocation which will guarantee you lead in innovation right one of the one of the big us success stories is our in, is our innovation around wi-fi right um, and so to say that i'm going to take a band and allocate it to wi-fi doesn't suggest your hindering innovation or any international competitiveness as compared to allocating it to something else. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, it sounds like you're giving us some insight into the U.S. priorities heading into, and I'm going to correct myself, the ITU's World Radio Communication Conference 2023. Um, you want to give us a sneak peek into what U.S. priorities might be? Sure. Look, the, the World Radio Conference is held every four years, and the idea is all of the countries of the world come together to the degree possible, either to harmonize spectrum use or even to the degree spectrum uses are different, to define them in a way so that your different spectrum uses don't interfere with someone else's spectrum uses, right? You don't have to do exactly the same thing, but if you're going to do X, do it in this way so it doesn't interfere with Y. Going into these conferences, given the size of the United States, given its importance uh, in, the, in the technology and the spectrum world, we always have a, a bunch of issues that are important. One of the ones most important is the one I already mentioned, six gigahertz. We would like to keep the current allocation so that it's used for unlicensed services globally. Uh, but as I said, China and also some countries in Europe would like to see part of it 
um, uh, allocated for, for terrestrial mobile services. Internationally, we support what the FCC does uh, in the United States. But this work is also sometimes called the satellite conference because there are so many satellite issues. Uh, among those are allocations for intersatellite links, which means one satellite in, the, in orbit can talk to another satellite in orbit, and they don't have to send their signals down to Earth to communicate with each other. Or they could move a signal from, from Africa to the United States in space and, and then link it to Earth in the United States, so you only have to build one Earth station rather than two. There are all issues about Earth stations in motion. What are that those? That's where you have satellites communicating with cell phones or other kinds of devices that are running around on cars, in your hand, whatever, on airplanes, but satellite to, to, to platforms that are in motion on Earth. There are a whole bunch of other satellite regulatory questions. With all of the new technologies and with new less expensive launch services having come online, we've entered a new age of satellite constellations and satellite services. So we very much support internationally the allocations needed uh, for needed by these new constellations and to support those services. And finally, there are always issues about terrestrial mobile allocations, and we have those as well. Yeah, but this sounds like a great laundry list, and I think it's you know kind of goes back to how we started this conversation, which is you know spectrum is a fundamental. Um, a uh, resource that we're going to have to continue to cultivate to accommodate this rising demand. And simultaneously, we also have to figure out, as you said, these emerging technologies so that the spectrum that we're allocating today really accommodates the activities that we're going to see tomorrow. I, I have to ask before we leave, Scott, and you know this is something that's always near and dear to my heart, diversity and participation. I am so excited to know that you're looking at this and it was one of the areas that you've looked at um, you know, or you're encouraging people to look at uh, as part of your listening sessions and in the spectrum strategy. Are we going to be able to find ways to increase diverse ownership and participation this time around? So I'm looking at it from the point of spectrum strategy, right? And I guess my answer is how we allocate the spectrum will indeed have an impact on the kinds of issues you're raising. Because with increased spectrum usage, you're going to have more spectrum sharing by definition, right? And as you have more spectrum sharing, you are going to have a variety of ways of allocating the ability to use that spectrum. We've talked about it before, licensed, unlicensed, shared spectrum, large areas of licensing, small areas of licensing, you're going to have more of these different kinds of approaches used all the time. And I am guessing that that is going to have a direct and immediate impact on the kinds of diversity questions you raise. Well, I'm hoping, you know, people like Eschanel Trigg and I for a long time when I was at MMTC, uh, thought that there were some things in place that, um, you know, I'd love to talk further about another time, like the designated entity program that really focused on cultivating spectrum ownership among diverse suppliers. I mean, I think at the end of the day, 
you are trying to solve two sides of the coin when it comes to inclusion, and that is ensuring that communities that are on the wrong side of digital opportunities have access to the appropriate spectrum to do the same things like everybody else, right? Absolutely. Um, in both the licensed and unlicensed space, but then also being very uh, calibrated and deliberate in our spectrum strategy so that we can get more players into the market is what I'm also hearing you say. You've got it. Wow, that was a good summary for somebody who uh, has been in spectrum class for a very long time, Scott Blake Harris. <laughs> um, this is a complicated issue. Any final remarks before we close up? I would just like to say it's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you about this, and I'd be happy to do it again as we as we move along with developing the spectrum strategy if you if you think it would be helpful. Oh, definitely. And I think I heard you say about six months and you've wrapped up some of the initial listening as well as comments. So we're excited on the part of Brookings Center for Technology Innovation to see where those comments lie. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. We really appreciate you giving us your time. I know it's very busy for you. It was truly my pleasure. And you know, I forgot to ask you one question, Scott, and I would be remiss if I didn't do it. You're paying attention to tribal spectrum too, right? <laughs> We have had this past week two tribal consultations. Uh, uh, we spent four hours all together with tribal leaders all across the United States discussing these issues. So the answer is yes. Perfect. Yeah, I would be remiss by talking about diversity and forgetting about our friends on tribal lands. So. Again, thanks, Scott, for joining us. And for those of you who have been listening, you are listening to the Tech Tank podcast where we take very complex technology policy issues and we transform them from bits into small bite-sized knowledge so that you can actually walk away and really learn something as you're listening to our uh, experts that we bring on to the show. Thank you again for listening. And for more uh, information about these and other topics, please be sure to visit our Tech Tank blog, which is available on the Brookings website, and subscribe to our podcast because this is the place to be when unraveling very highly technical issues and issues that in the end affect us all. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.